Look, when a crazy number of COVID cases over the weekend, over 5,000 new cases, which is a record high to Malaysia. In your opinion, why is this MCO not as effective as the first MCO and what can we actually do better? Well, I think people have not been following the SOPs as well as they did way back in March last year. A lot of it is psychological as well. I know people have been desensitized. We've been living with COVID for the longest time. I mean, it's human nature for us to, you know, be a bit desensitized. We shouldn't do. And I guess the difference between this MCO and the last MCO, I mean, the full MCO that was executed in March 2020 was that the government has also admitted that although this is an MCO, they also have to loosen some restrictions compared to the one in March last year because, you know, it's the lives versus livelihood kind of thing. So it, it was not as strict per se as it was in March. So that's that difference. Plus, people are a bit sick of COVID. They understand the need for MCO, especially here in Klang Valley. But it's just not the same because last time there was this COVID just arrived in, uh, in January, February, and you know, we did uh, MCO in March. Mm. You know, it was still top of mind back then. Now people are just desensitized. Hence, we are seeing some lapses in terms of how people are actually obeying the SOPs to the point that the government even is mulling a higher penalty, stricter SOPs. That's why it's just not quite the same this time. But we have to be disciplined. We have to keep disciplined. I mean, we've entered uncharted territory. The MCO can be as strict as it can be, but at the end of the day, it's up to us whether we want to actually follow through and be disciplined to follow all the SOPs. I mean, um, going back to what you're saying, the IGP has said it's time to increase the compound fine for those that actually violate that. Do you think that increasing the fine will actually put a stop to those flouting the SOPs? I don't think it will put a stop to people uh, flouting SOPs. I think it will definitely help. I think it will definitely help limit disobedience. I think it's a lot more overdue, in fact. 1,000 ringgit, at least for me, is a lot of money. But apparently for a lot of people, it's not a lot of money. It's worth the risk of, you know, sneaking out to go and cross borders and things like that. Mm. I think it's high time because at the end of the day, we have blasted countless reminders on TV, on radio, you know, PSAs saying mm. that, hey, it's just follow the SOPs, don't cross state borders, don't cross uh, county borders and things like mm. that. It's time for us to put our foot, I mean, the government for, 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 for the government to actually use the stick and not the carrot anymore. Right. So I believe this will actually be more effective in curbing people's, the disobedience of SOPs. With the increasing number of COVID cases in South Korea, Germany and here in Malaysia, Singapore has temporarily suspended its reciprocal travel bubble arrangement. How will this impact Malaysians working in Singapore but living here in Malaysia? Well, I think it goes without saying that it has a huge effect. I think I think one of the busiest, you know, routes, whether it be aerial or the ground route, is, is between land route is between Malaysia and Singapore. I'm not sure of the figure, but I'm sure millions or at least hundreds of thousands of Sing- uh, Malaysians work in Singapore. Uh, a huge number of Singaporeans work in Malaysia as well. Probably not as many as Malaysians working in Singapore. This was supposed to be one of the first recovery kind of effort, back to normalcy kind of effort. We were so, this, was, this was in the pipeline. We were supposed to bring the cases down to two digits, single digit as we did sometime middle uh, last year. Thereafter, the immediate priority was to rejuvenate the economy. And when you talk about the reju- rejuvenating the Malaysian economy, uh, Singapore is key. The inability for Malaysians or Singaporeans for that matter to you know, um, cross borders between our two countries would have a negative effect on both economies, especially Malaysia. Because as you know, Malaysians in JB, they rely a lot on income they earn in Singapore. The cost of living in JB is very, very high. But jobs in JB itself 
sometimes can like pay not enough. So a lot of them rely on that. I've had many friends, you know, who, who work in Singapore. They are stranded uh, in Malaysia. They can't go to work, and their employers sometimes are a bit strict as well because some of them were terminated because they they couldn't just come to work for three weeks, four weeks, and then for months. This. I'm afraid would have a compounding effect because people are already losing their jobs. People are already having their income severely reduced. They are already facing a lot of economic hardships. So for those, especially in Johor Bahru, uh, on the east coast of Malaysia, this is the last thing that they need. They will now also face the possibility of not being able to go to Singapore to work, possibly lose their jobs. I still hope that the government can, you know, consider some sort. Limited, you know, travel bubble kind of thing. Maybe a corridor between two countries because I think it's key. I, I understand things are not as they were a few months ago. You know, we are facing now the third or the fourth wave. I just think that this will have a long-term effect that we will see because a lot of people are now debating that the impact. Of collapsed economy would be just as bad as a, the impact of an uncontrolled pandemic. So, Dr. Sri Ismail Sabri claimed that the condo managements have a right to bar residents if they don't comply with the COVID swab test. Experts in property claim that they have no right to bar an owner and/or resident from their homes, as there is no provision for this in the Strata Management Act. So, it's all a bit confusing and a bit stressful as well. Yeah. So, can a condo owner or resident be barred from entering their own property? It is confusing, right? You know, COVID has given us many firsts. It is really unprecedented, indeed, and it continues to surprise every day. Even all aspects of life, such as this, now you're yeah. talking about Aisha, we 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 are entering you know new ground, something that we've never encountered before, and we are asking ourselves. Can we do this? Well, I'm no lawyer, but legally, as you mentioned just now, I don't think there's any legal grounds per se. This is if you're referring to the Strata Act and uh, all the uh, traditional acts with regards to home ownership. So that's one. But the law is quite flexible as well. It is open to interpretation. Me personally, I'm gonna go ahead and say I support what Ismail Sabri said. Yeah, me. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, explain why there has to be some uh, refinements, though. For example, I do not support a blanket rule as such to be imposed everywhere in the country. But let's say if you are in a very critical zone, a red zone, a building, a condo, which has seen few cases not long ago. So I think it makes sense. For the management of the condominium to take leadership and take matters seriously and impose, you know, higher conditions for people to meet, you know, swap tests and things like that. Like my apartment, we have all kinds of little things. We even have daily sanitization. They even took the initiative to actually put toothpicks in the lift so that whenever you go into the lift, you you don't need to press the button with your actual <laughs> fingers. Okay. You take the toothpick and then you press. I don't know, it's a bit silly, right? But it's great. You, know? you do what you have um, to do, right? Right. Yeah. So, but the thing is that, so I guess the question comes in when, you know, if you've, you're positive, like a friend of mine is positive, but not no. so ill, touch wood, that they need the hospital. So, therefore, not taking up a hospital bed. If they're locked out of their homes, how are they supposed to go back and quarantine home at home? Quarantine, if yeah. they're If they're kept out because they're positive. That's a good point. Like I said, I don't think there should be a blanket rule, for example, because Dr. Sri Ismail Sabri also did not really go into detail. Uh, I, I give you that. But the version that I probably would like to see is that it should be on a case-to-case basis, for example. I have a friend. I have a friend who tested positive as well. And last I checked, he 
never got admitted into MIPS because MIPS just couldn't take him anymore. And it was not such a serious case like your friend, Asha. So what happens then? The logical thing to do is to get the patient quarantined in his or her home. So in that circumstance, I would accept for that person to be able to, to, to have access, of course, to his or her own home. But we have to see it on a case-to-case basis because, for example, if there are people in that house, especially high-risk people, older people, kids and things like that, who has not tested positive, there has to be some controls as to how you approach it so you can limit the damage. For now, yes, people in the same house can remain in the same house. And usually when one tests positive, the others will test positive as well. Usually, there's still a way for us to refine this. I'm not saying that I have all the answers. I don't. But I am not keen to straight away jump into what the minister said and say, no, this is silly. I do see the logic of it, but there still uh, is a lot of work to be done to refine it for it to be effective. A seven-year-old boy died in Taman Krobong Jaya here yesterday after he was believed to have been abused by his mother and stepfather, aged 32 and 38, have been detained. The boy's believed to have been taken back by his biological mother after he was raised by a foster family for six years. This is actually one of the saddest news articles that we've come across for over the week. For a seven-year-old to lose his life and for a foster family to, to lose the child that they actually cared about and treated as their own treated correctly in your opinion how could this have been avoided i don't know in hindsight it's easy for us to say right the boy had been with the foster family for six years and the biological parents of the boy had a right to reclaim him for lack of a better term is that because there was a the, the sentence of i mean if he was taken away because of the abuse in the first place where was the rights that came into that that after a stipulated amount of time he could go back I don't believe the abuse was really brought up in the early stages because we actually interviewed the the foster mom she just mentioned that you know after a few years the the parents somehow for some reason decided to take the boy back um, which they had to give in to so it's easy for, for for us to actually look back in hindsight and say we could have done this better we could have done that better sure i put myself in the shoes of the foster mom look i've spent six years taking care of this kid as if he was my own i've taken care of this kid since he was in in the crib you know up until he was six and once he was taken back by his biological parents then there was a bit of a uh, you know claims of the boy not being treated well etc i guess one thing in hindsight that we could have foreseen better was the ability for for kids really to actually reach out to someone if they are in such circumstances we've been debating about you know talian kasi and things like that the government has put in uh, well at least one avenue or of communication for people who face abuse rather but it's hard for a six-year-old or maybe a five or four even an eight-year-old to to actually contact talian kasi or talian this and talian that when he or she say is alone with a set of abusive parents Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure whether that was the case in this boy's predicament. We have to wait for the investigations to come through. But something has to be thought out. So what kind of amendments um, do you think our Child Protection Act needs to have to, or, or systems in place to ensure that the children here in Malaysia are protected? Well, to be honest with you, I don't think the act needs so much more work. I haven't looked at it from A to Z, I admit. But the penalties, I think, are sufficient, uh, etc., so in terms of the act, the framework is there, but rather the the monitoring, the execution of it, the process, uh, once, let's say, the perpetrator is caught and he or she is 
put to court, then the act is there. And I think personally it's sufficient. But until you get to that process, or even if you get to the process of catching a perpetrator, usually the damage is already done. So the focus should be on avoiding, not curing. Prevention is better than cure, especially when lives are at stake, such young, tender lives. Like I mentioned, for example, it's still pretty challenging and pretty hard for a child. If I'm a child, I'm alone in an abusive household. I'm say six or seven or five, something like that. And I've got 30-something parents in the house with me. Probably we live in an apartment not so big. I get abused every now and then or maybe frequently. How, how do I reach out to people? Yes. You know, how do I reach out to people without endangering myself even further? Mm-hmm. So this is what the government has to look into. 2,000 chickens died after long delays at the Tuas checkpoint while they were being transported from Malaysia to Singapore. For the longest time, there has been calls for another bridge connecting Malaysia and Singapore due to the congestion. <laughs> In your opinion, isn't it? Or is it the right time to revisit this plan? The short answer is actually no. Because as you know, we've got a ton of other things on our plate right now. Uh, this has been years actually in debate. The, the second bridge and things like that with the Singapore and Malaysia relationship. Well, I just don't think it's a priority right now. I understand it's a big concern of some people. Especially now with COVID, they have got to get their businesses going. We talked about Malaysians working in Singapore and vice versa. We also have businesses having to make the very frequent commute from Malaysia to Singapore one of the busiest, you know, routes anywhere in the world, actually. So ideally, we would like to have it, yes, for for commerce to avoid unnecessary losses like this. 2,000 chickens, I'm sure it's worth a lot. I'm sure you can feed a lot of people. The thing is, this is one of the ideal case kind of things that we have to pursue. But I, I don't just don't think it's now. Right, when we're out of the woods, perhaps. Because right now, I think yeah. it was also because of the traffic was pre-COVID times, but also now they're doing so many new tests that cause uh, the congestion as well, right? So- yeah, actually, yeah, yeah that's, actually, that's actually true. There's a lot of claims saying that, you know, the infrastructure between Malaysia and Singapore are not really current anymore. Takes into consideration, you know, traffic volume from I don't know how many years ago. So things have changed now. I went to Singapore probably a year ago, a year and a half ago. Wow, traveling. I I still remember how it feels like. Sounds so odd, doesn't it? I went to Singapore over a year ago. What? Normally it's like last weekend for JD. Yeah, you get get stuck at the CIQ for Mm. hours, you know? Correct. So yeah, yeah, obviously some upgrades have to be made. Well, I suppose the other thing to think of is, you know, in this case with the 2,000 chickens, maybe if there weren't so many chickens packed together in in one transport. um, Okay. Okay, you know, yeah. with some ventilation, that might not have happened. Mm. So there's a lot of factors, as you say. Yeah, that's a good point as well. Look, I'm not a, I'm not a poultry expert, but I have heard of um, a large number of animals being transported, especially smaller animals like chicken. I, I do think there's a way to do it properly. I do think there are vehicles, SOPs in place to carry something like 2,000 chickens with proper ventilation and all. I'm not too sure whether that was one of the factors. It might have been. Uh, but I think the bigger picture here is, you know, for, for us to get it from point A to, to point B. It's not just a chicken. We've had a few instances, you know, things like perishables have actually, well, perished within Singapore and Malaysia yeah. because of right. the congestions and things like that. So it's something that we definitely have to look into once we are out of the woods, right. like you said, yeah. Asha.